Welcome to another episode of Biotalks, brought to you by Black Art in America, the number one site for black art news in the world, and now available in print as well. Bio the Mag is a free print magazine published bi-monthly. You can order your copy at blackartinamerica.com. This is your boy, Jay Barber. And Tracy Ann, the Miami Culture Maven. This marks the 12th year that SCAD celebrates Define Art, and the first time all the programming will be virtual. This allows for audiences around the world to tune in to the three days of arts programming, which will include a virtual opening reception, gallery talks, artist conversations, studio visits, and more. There's truly something for all art lovers to enjoy, and all the virtual programming is free to watch. For more information, visit scad.edu slash defineart2021. All artists taking part in Define Art Programming also have exhibitions on view at the SCAD Museum of Art in Savannah or SCAD Fash Museum of Fashion and Film in Atlanta, allowing people to tune in to the virtual programming during the week and then go see these international artists' works. This year, Define Art exhibitions include sculpture, painting, fibers, architecture, illustration, photography, and costume design, which reflect the university's top-ranked degree programs. Keynote speaker Sanford Bigger's Contradiction Exhibition is a visceral experience for visitors that speaks to combating racial injustices. Bigger's exhibition will be on view in the Walter O. Evans Center for African American Studies, a permanent gallery space in SCAD Museum of Art dedicated to exhibiting the work of contemporary African American artists. And now let's get into this conversation with Sanford Biggers. All right, this is your boy Jay Barber and Tracy Ann talking with internationally known, locally respected multimedia artists. Also, the SCAD Define Art 2021 honoree and keynote lecture speaker, Mr. Sanford Biggers. How you doing, man? I'm doing okay. How you doing today? We're good, man. Excited to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. I'm really excited that the Define Art Festival will be virtual this year. So those of us far and wide can seek that visceral experience that we've come to expect from your show, Sanford. So can you tell us more about what we can look forward to from Contradiction? Uh, Yes. So Contradiction is going to be a compilation of works from probably over the last 10 or so years, maybe almost 15 years. So you'll see um, aspects, you know, I have a very varied interdisciplinary practice. So I have sound works, video works, performance works, sculptural and painting works. And there'll be a bit of each of those in this show. So there'll be a large video installation, smaller video installations, some marble pieces, some bronze works, some paintings, and some uh, uh, objects from performances. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think one of the notes about your work that I find very fascinating is kind of the way you go into these different histories and these different cultural symbols and kind of retextualize them, um, redefine them and respond to what you see. Like, where does that interest in history and culture come from? Well, you know, I grew up in like, you know, many people, I'm sure, you know, maybe even yourselves um, being a product of the American education system there was a need to have supplementary education at home because there were just certain aspects of our personal, our specific cultural history that obviously were not and still are not taught in school. Um, ironic that we're speaking about that on February, <laughs> Black <Yeah>. Mystery Month. <laughs> right. The um, irony. <laughs> the irony. Um, so um, 
from a very early age, I always sought other information, you know, beyond just what was given to me in class. But I might go to the library and look up the same story to see if there was another version of it or speaking to my mm. older brother and sister or my parents and them giving me the behind the scenes other aspects of history that was not covered in class. So um, that influenced at a very early age the, the kind of paintings I was even making. I'd be drawing or portraying people like uh, Sojourner Truth or Gandhi or um, uh, Thelonious Monk. And I would show those images to friends of mine, you know, in our teens. And some people knew it and some people didn't know who they were. So I was able to explain and give the ideas behind some of those people and their motivations. And it was an educational platform. So as I've progressed and evolved as an artist, I found ways to do that um, and deal with you know, more and more controversial or overlooked aspects of history and cultural significance. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm so happy that you just validated all of my weirdo-isms as a child, because obviously they can blossom into something that informs the greater public and the communities around us. So thank you for that. I appreciate that very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my pleasure. I mean, I think that's one of, you know, one of the responsibilities, I think, of creators. But, you know, I also mm-hmm. look at myself being part of a much larger diasporic, griotic you know, uh, history, meaning that we're living and passing information as the griot did. So it's by word, it's by display, it's by illustration, as opposed to just documentation. And I think you talked a little bit about your travels, like all over the world, like even living in Japan for a number of years. And kind of, does that give you a sense of being more of a global citizen, like connected to all people across cultures? And uh, do you look for that? when you go into your new work? Well, you know, it's interesting. I found, you know, for me personally, it put me in a sort of a double or triple consciousness situation. So there's Hmm. the aspect of me being an African-American living in Japan and all Mm -hmm. the different nuances of that. Then there was the larger one of me being an American living in, let's say, Budapest or Berlin. So there's those ramifications as well. So mm-hmm. not only am I representing African-America, but I'm representing America and I'm being perceived, depending on the place, depending on the climate, as one or the other. Some people have an idea of African-American culture being somehow distinct from the larger American culture. Other people, other countries see America as just America and don't know all those delineations. So on some levels, I don't have to respond or be triggered or be worried about some of the things that I worry about on U.S. soil. But I'm also considering other things that I may not consider when I'm on U.S. soil. And the last part of that is you start to understand your own home country a lot more by being detached from it. You see how other people perceive America, our policies, our actions. And those conversations are actually very um, fulfilling because you're speaking as people, giving perspectives about much larger things without being sort of a pigeonholed. Uh, do you feel a need to identify like yourself as African-American? I know, uh, you know, it's a particular identity that we kind of here in America kind of exist in that we always mm-hmm. like feel like we're in a constant struggle um, for and against the implied mm-hmm. black identity that's being put on us. Like, mm-hmm. how, do, how do you sit with that? I mean, that's a great question. And it's unfortunate, but I think that's part of the conditioning of Americans, period doesn't matter what color you are is that Mm -hmm. that dynamic is always in the background and it really 
controls our interactions with almost everybody. Um, and that's a very unique American condition. And I'm not trying to say that everything's ideal and perfect and paradise in every other country because every other country has their problems. But right. that feeling of always being second or third class in America is not only, you know, sometimes a, a political reality, but it's also a mindset that can really uh, it could shoot you. It, it could stop you from striving things that you might if you weren't preoccupied with that. Right. It brings you always have that consideration in the back of your mind uh, mm -hmm. where you sit in blackness in any given space that you go into. So that, that's a, that's an interesting thing to take with you, especially in your journeys around the world. Well, you know, some places are better than others. You know, you know, when I was living in Atlanta, that was one place where I didn't feel the need to do and perform certain aspects of identity because I was you know, surrounded by so many people who look like me working on so many different levels that there was a functioning society with a myriad with myriad types of black people. Right. Yeah. But right. if you're in a, a if you're in a place where there aren't that many examples of different, you know, of the non monolithic culture that we are, then you find yourself up against the wall having to define some things that you may not want to waste the time defining. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I think that the choice really is yours. And I really applaud you as a black man who you know, allowed himself to have those global experiences because personally, I'm a Jamaican American and my parents don't have that experience. And when I go to Jamaica as a child, I don't have the experience of being the minority. So mm -hmm. I appreciate when other people get that experience and then to see how that translates into, you know, your approach in your multidisciplinary, you know, artistic um, endeavors. I really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it can be a liberating thing. Um and I'm glad that more and more people are traveling. But I'll be quite honest, when I <laughs> when I was um, in undergrad, I ended up going to Florence, Italy to study art and Italian for a year. And I was in Morehouse at the time. And there were friends of mine at Morehouse who were like, wow, you're really bold to go to that country for that long by yourself. You could get lynched. <laughs> you know, I mean, the kind of things they were saying were like, you know, they aren't lynching brothers up in, in, in Italy. They're doing other stuff. They ain't lynching us. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, you know, so, you know, you don't want to bring that baggage. You don't want to bring that baggage with you. You got enough luggage to take on the plane. You don't want to bring that kind of baggage with you on a trip. So um, but now the attitude is a lot different. And from even me going on those trips, those long periods, coming back two or three years later, talking to the same friends who are now showing me their passports and all the places they went. So even though they were teasing me, they were like, well, if he could do it, I could do it, which is, you know, once again, a very important thing. And I think there's a generational thing with African-Americans regarding that. Um, you know, there's always been the affluent who have been able to travel. But by and large, I think the world has started to collapse in a way where younger African-Americans have started traveling much earlier and seeing those different perspectives. Yeah. And I think seeing those stories of different expatriates, um, like people, you know, going back to, Ghana and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think that uh, influence on the culture has been felt and mm -hmm. in the ability of people to do it and then the the desire for people to do it because uh, that wasn't always an option. I mean, I would grow up in North right. Carolina like my parents uh, still live in the same area, one of the poorest counties in North Carolina. There's no mm -hmm. way that was even on their radar to believe right. they could do it in the first place. Um, right. And so now we have a different generation where, you know, you can check your phone and see. Uh, people that you knew in college in, in Tobago, like, you know, yeah. get, getting, mm -hmm. down, getting down and, you know, it inspires you to do different things. 
Yep. The whole totally. black travel movement on social media, I feel is like really epic. And as you said, you know, it's encouraging young people and I'm talking like 20s and 30s to go out and see the world and, and showing us that, you know, there is a huge importance in getting those enriching experiences. Well, you know, minus doing that, a lot of these other countries are getting their information about us from American media. And B-E-T. only for the last... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, other than that, they're they're still looking at you know cops. It's <laughs> 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 indication in some other language, right? You know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's a different thing when they walk outside their 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 flat and they see a brother or a sister on the street and they have a conversation like, "Wait a second, you just blew my mind. You're not holding a mm. basketball, and <laughs> you're not you're not in the military." You know, these are the things that they assume are the reasons why we're in that country. Either you're entertaining or you're military. Right. But when you start to have conversations and they realize that, oh, no, I, I'm a professor or I'm an artist or, uh, you know, I'm a writer, other things start to pop up, then you're actually expanding people's minds. Yeah. I think this whole story um, lets me think about the ghetto bird tunic a little bit. Like, because mm. um, in having these different experiences, um, you in this ghetto bird tunic has been having a bunch of different experiences like just being on stage with performers like Saul Williams, right? Uh, being in your videos, would you using them being on display? Like, so what kind of energy does that give to your uh, to your art? I know you talk about power objects and, and objects having internal oral. Um, tell us about yeah. that. Well, so the Ghettoburg Tunic was a project that I did um, you know, probably a good 15 years ago. Um, I grew up in L.A. and we used to talk about the ghetto bird all the time, which is, you know, <laughs> slang for yeah. police helicopters. Yeah, watch right? out. Yeah. They'd be over our houses all the time. <laughs> So um, as I started getting deeper into sculpture and the language of the museum and how I would start to see objects from uh, pre-Columbian and Asian and African societies that were, you know, in a vitrine with a definition of how it was used. And this was used for a ritual or a coming of age, uh, rites of passage thing. And I started thinking, you know, myself and all my friends figured out ways to not get hit up by, you know, the ghetto bird or cops in general growing up in Los Mm. Angeles. I was Mm -hmm. like, what if you could put on a coat? And if you went outside in the coat and you were able to navigate without getting picked up by the cops, then that was a rite of passage. So there's a bit of sarcasm, you know, dark humor in that idea that every (laughs) young black person at some point learns how to dodge and avoid the cops. Um, But I just ended up making a whole outfit for the rites of passage. Once you were able to complete that, you get that, you know. Uh, full-length feather coat. Um, so I made three <laughs> versions of that. You'll see the full-length one. There's one for toddlers because, you know, you can't start running yeah. too soon. Yeah. Um, and then I put them That's in the museum. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you put it in the museum, I have the definition right there written in the same language as, as everything else in that museum. So now it seems like it's an object from a foreign culture, but it's actually, you know, you know contemporary America where you have these weird unspoken rites of passages and unspoken um, codes of behavior that not everyone has to abide by, but some do. Right. And to have a coat to help us cover ourselves while we're going through that rites of passage, I think is just, it's so powerful. And it just lends to that, you know, again, the word that I see a lot with your work is visceral. And, you know, that lasting experience that one has when delving into the meaning behind why you did your work. I mean, it's just so multifaceted. And and honestly, it's magical. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So, you know, uh, you know, to follow up with that last comment, um, the Getabor tunic, you know, that's how I started that project, but I wanted to give it 
even more energy, as you mentioned, and charge it even a bit more. So I started to lend it out to different friends of mine who were using it in their performances. So Saul Williams and Terry Adkins and Satch Hoyt. You even see me wear it in uh, one of uh, the video projects I've done with Moon Medicine. So now that tunic is the repository for all of this energy of various performers. So it's literally charged. And when you see it, you might not be watching documentation of, of all those performances, but you sense that aura coming off of the object. Right. And, and what kind of what kind of life do you think that gives it? Like, as um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about your quilt series, too. And, and uh, a lot of it is the objects having been lived in. Right. Like the, the mm -hmm. same way that the people use these quilts for they were functional art pieces. Right. Mm -hmm. Not just uh, decorations for the wall, but they were you know actually keeping people warm. They touch people's bodies like in mm -hmm. the same way. Like talk about that transference of energy and what you think that gives a piece. Well, I think that goes back to that idea of the work being visceral is because your body automatically reacts to the quilt because it knows what the quilt's there for. It's for your body to keep you warm and comfort you. Uh, you sense all the other hands that made that and why they made that, the care, the sensitivity and so on. So when you know, you know, you're looking at one of those quilt works, not only are you seeing all the imagery and where I've painted and drawn on them, but you're also imagining how would that be to be wrapped up in? Would I wear it? Mm. Would I sleep in it? Um, so even though it's on the wall, it's still performing in some way. And even though it's an artwork, it's also a personal piece in another way. So they're working on, you know, I think each one of those pieces is doing multiple things. Mm -hmm. And I think that also just going back to Ghetto Bird really quickly, the, the energy that, you know, the rites of passage in actually being able to wear that has with it. It makes me think immediately like, oh my gosh, what opportunity would I get to be able to wear that coat and add to that, you know, rites of passage type of energy that then gets passed on just like oratory history. I love mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. I'm going yeah. so like, to like, I'm aspiring wearer. to wear Ghetto Bird. I just want you to know that. <laughs> I'm aspiring well, to wear well, once you wear it, you end up being part of the, the history of that piece and you're sharing that history with everybody else who's worn it. So, it, you know, it's almost a living thing. Power off. I love the idea. I love it. Yeah. So let's move to some of your quilt works. Uh, is this your current series that you're working on or is it kind of just an ongoing thing? It's an ongoing thing. Um, but the current exhibition I have up now at the Bronx Museum is called Code Switch. And it's a compilation of around 60 of those quilt works. And I've been working on that series for around uh, 10 or close to 12 years now. Um, and essentially what it is, is taking antique quilts, quilts that have been discarded, quilts that are donated to me, quilts that I find in thrift stores or online, and then painting and collaging and drawing directly on those quilts to create another artwork. So I see myself as a collaborator working with the original makers of those quilts. And what you end up with is sort of a cross-generational palimpsest or conversation in those materials. And uh, one of the reasons I got interested in the quilt was because I read in an exhibition years ago that quilts were supposedly used on the Underground Railroad as signposts. Mm -hmm. So as escaping... Um, Enslaved people were coming from the south to the north. If they come to a safe house and they see a quilt of a certain pattern or folded a certain way or placed at a certain location, it gave coded uh, information 
like the safe house is under surveillance, keep moving, or it's safe, you could stay here tonight, or follow the drunkard's path to the North <laughs> Star and make a turn here or something like that. So, um, you know, historians have debated for years whether or not that's true, but as a vernacular uh, history, it still persists. So that's sort of how that project got started for me. So now I see myself as, you know, adding to code that already exists on those quilts. And then someone in the future could read it and they're seeing all of this American code. Right. And so tell me a little bit about you say you got some most of the work was donated to you. Tell me how you how you how that happens. <laughs> like, you know, do people just show up with a bag of quilts and like you go? It Sanford? has happened. Yeah, it's really it's really strange. Um, You know, I started the work, um, you know, specifically for an exhibition in Philadelphia. And when that show was done. You know, I, I didn't even own those quilts at that time. So I borrowed them and I literally safety pinned stuff on there because I knew I had to give them back. So, <laughs> oh, wow. Um, <laughs> but uh, once I gave all those quilts back, I did have two that remained in my studio and I started painting and experimenting directly on those. And then I had a studio visit with a bunch of people. And as they were leaving, a woman stayed behind and she really was interested in them. And then she told me that she used to sell antique quilts and she stopped years before and they were just collecting dust in her closets. And she asked if I would take some, you know, if I wanted any. And she donated around 25, maybe even 30 quilts to me. And that got me started on the series. And the That's interesting like, thing about this, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, the interesting thing about this woman, she happens to be um, a, like a great, great, great granddaughter of um, um, Andrew Johnson, um, Andrew Jackson, sorry. Um, so she had all of these um, quilts that had been handed down from that family line. So they goes back hundreds of years. And she enjoyed that I was playing with the politics by working on those. You know, if I'm defacing them or embellishing them, if I'm playing with this history of Americana and literally spray painting directly on it, that there's a political gesture there, too, in addition to these becoming sort of beautiful works. Is that history important to you as you start working on them? Like, do you know kind of the history of all these donated quilts as you get them? As much as I can, I do. Um, and because, yeah, that history is important to me. I mean, I feel a certain deference to the quilts as they already exist. Um, it's not my intention to erase the work that's already been done. It's more to collaborate with the work that's already there, you know, the stitch work, mm -hmm. the patterns, the colors, and so on. So there is a bit of a, you know, there's, it's a conversation with the existing work and what I do to it. So that history. I feel is like important. it really makes you a medium. Mm -hmm. You know, like well, you go to yeah. mediums to to kind of find out like what people who have passed on are trying to communicate with you now. Something that may inform you, you know, in a way that you didn't know that you needed to be informed in. I feel like you do that and you embody that by doing the code switch work. Yeah, well, I think that's what it's about. Once again, to use the word we keep coming back to is power objects. That power, that history, that knowledge is there. So I am basically channel channeling and focusing it as opposed to trying to erase it, you know, and start fresh. I think it also brings in uh, a conversation about labor, about um, the hands that, that made and put in work into these pieces and, and how they were used and how these kind of existed as art objects outside of the academic canon of art. Um, you know, these, these black women uh, most of the time were not considered, you know, artists, quote unquote artists um, by major people. I think one of the first that I've heard of it was the G's Ben um, quilts that were on display 
like in a museum that may that may have been the first time it was done i'm not sure um uh, that that was the first time that i can recall it being done in a contemporary museum you right. know it was at the whitney so this yeah. is like you know the apex of contemporary european white male abstract art you know what i mean yeah so to have those g's been quilts in that context was saying a lot um but there was also that political uh reading is that okay now you have these works by these you know disenfranchised black women in this hallowed space and the works are holding their own the works are blowing everyone's mind and so there was the aspect of women being on those walls and then black women being on those walls right when i saw that exhibition that also was another impetus to work with the quilts because they were so charged and loaded with so many different um interesting narratives yeah and i think you you take them um and kind of we're back to you thinking about interruption um historical interruption um you take a piece like chemistry where you took the a quilt um or a series of quilts i guess and you added this kind of construction structure to it um that allowed people to move around and see different objects uh and different planes of view and how everything connects like tell us how you made that leap from just the wall to kind of these structural pieces well you know within the pattern work on the quilt there is an aspect of sacred geometry and even numerology. Right. You know, obviously there's measurements and mathematics all around, all embedded inside of the quilt. So mm-hmm. one of the things I wanted to do was to play with the idea of pushing, you know, three-dimensional perspective and also playing with the idea of sacred geometry. So I started to make these armatures that look like almost geometric solids or origami and then cover the facades with different quilts so that they literally were becoming three-dimensional geometric objects. Um, and the one you're uh, referencing, chemistry, um, the way I spell it is like kemet, like kemetic African mm, culture. Right, 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 so yeah. it's not chemistry, it's chemistry. So the names also provide a lot of information too. So I see that piece as what we'd like to call a hyper object because it always feels like it's shifting and morphing as you walk around it. But it's also sort of communicating across time. And how large is chemistry? Chemistry is pretty big. It's around 12 feet or so across and around five or six feet uh, tall. So, you know, it's a pretty significant wall piece. Yeah. And is that, is that also about um, perspective as people travel around it and it starts to change? I like how you say it's a hyper object. Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. Like explain it a little bit. Yeah. So, for example, if you walk to that piece and let's say you walk on the left side, it will look like it's one solid pattern. But the minute you break that plane, you start to see the other facades that have a different pattern on it. So it disrupts that 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 logic that you saw from that hard angle. And then if you go all the way to the further right side, the opposite side, you'll see a totally different quilt. So um, it's an optical illusion of sorts. It happens because of those three-dimensional facades. So depending on your point of view, you will see either in all the different patterns or only one pattern at a time. It's like the magic eye books of the 90s. You know, we would be like killing ourselves, trying to turn our heads to the side just to be able to see the other things that people claim they saw. But I mean, in real life with so much historical weight to it. So, I mean, that's exactly the visceral quality that, you know, we have learned to expect from your pieces. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think about, you know, uh, we talked about that sort of gender divide and how 
sort of wonderful it was to see the G's Ben work in the Whitney, but you're also talking about work that was marginalized because it was made by women and they were considered domestic objects. So they were not high art, but more, you know, social craft. But when you start to add and complicate, you know, those pieces with the geometry and those platonic solid references and so on, you start to see a much more complicated language that the work these <laughs> women were doing actually is communicating from. Shout out to our new and recurring patrons. Would you buy stock in Baya if you could? Well, we invite you to join us in becoming a monthly supporter. Starting at just $3 a month, you become a stakeholder and begin to help us transform lives through art. Such art initiatives and educational programming like Black Lights with Steve Prince, Relating to Art with Dr. Kelly Morgan, and Buy a Bits would not be possible without the ongoing support of our Patreon members. Review our list of rewards for becoming a Buy a Patreon slash patron supporter. Learn more at www.patreon.com slash Black Art in America. And so I think now we'll ease into another conversation. I think you have a lot about um, materials and materiality and um, the objectness of, of pieces. So chemistry was antique quilt, birch plywood, gold leaf, which you've also used in all your work, sand, latex, bronze, glass, video, steel, music. Like you do a lot of different things. Like how do you approach that in your practice? Or is it just something you just kind of you find the concept first and then think about the best way to execute that idea? Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of that. You know, you know, I do consider myself a conceptual artist. So at the end of the day, it's the idea that's the most important thing. But my job then is to find the best material to communicate that idea in. So the quilts do speak on a certain level. But then I use bronze uh, in the BAM series, which is a series where I've been taking African sculptures, covering them in wax and taking them to a shooting range and then having them shot with different caliber weapons as a way of, quote unquote, sculpting them. And then I take the remnants of those pieces and cast them in bronze. And so now you have a bronze image of an African sculpture that has bullet holes and missing limbs and so on. But I name each of those pieces they're all dedicated and memorializing recent victims of police violence. So you'll have for Michael or for Tamir or for Philando and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. So, you know, for me, bronze was the way to transubstantiate from the wooden figure that has seemingly been destroyed, but now it's been resurrected in bronze. So fortified and even stronger and memorializing a victim. So, materials work that way bronze does that in a way that wood couldn't do right but you know another piece might need marble another piece might need glass you know it just depends you know i'm really happy that you you talked about you know the use of your materials in the bam series because it's one of the series that you know it really hit home for me and um as a fellow artist you know i really acknowledge that you speak about the detachment while making that series you know the fact that you didn't shoot the gun of course for obvious ethical reasons and i wonder you know do you have a practice of intentionally detaching from your work in order to see the bigger picture um and does that like inform your process in general or was that specific to the creation of bam 
It's a little bit of both. I think you have to detach yourself a little bit to try to see things with fresh eyes. Um, you know, it's also helpful to, you know, show the works to friends and other people, you know, who are familiar to your work to understand what they're getting from it, to see if you're communicating on the, on the level that you want to. So that detachment sometimes is important. But the reality is I am so deeply invested in all the things I do that I have to detach myself. Otherwise, I won't be able to see the thing completely. But for that specifically, as you mentioned, there was the ethical um, reality that I did not want to be the one to pull the trigger on that one. So there was a very intentional detachment there. Um, I also didn't want to um, aestheticize that process too much. And by having someone else pull the trigger, they were just pulling a trigger. They weren't saying, oh, well, if I move it to the left, I can make it look like this. Or mm, they right. didn't, the, the objects weren't precious to them. The objects were precious to me. So I had to remove myself from that part of the process. And in, in, in that process that you describe, like it, it's a multi-step process that gets you to one place and then that place takes you to another place. Like you give the wax and you put them in bronze. Um, is, is all, does all your work develop in that way? Like, or do you do you have kind of this multi-pronged approach to the creation of the thing? Um, yeah, I think all my work does work that way. There's a significant amount of process that goes into that. And a lot of that process is invisible. Like you mentioned, you know, the pouring of the wax and all those smaller details that lead up to the actual shooting. You know, those aren't really talked about or really visible too much um, for most people. But it's a way of me showing deference to the materials. Um, that's how power objects are made anyway. They're handled with a certain amount of care and process. You can't just use any piece of wood to depict something. You have to use a special kind of wood from a certain tree that is aged a certain way and has a certain type of significance. So I embed that into all my projects by the amount of time and the processes that I use and employ to make the work. The quilts, I sit in a room with those for months to even years before I work on them because it's a communication thing with each specific quilt. It's not, you know, I don't just jump on it like a blank canvas. So, um, and the BAM series too. I spent a lot of time with each of those objects before they went to the shooting range and then a lot more time even after that. And uh, with that project, we videotape the, you know, with a slow, with a fast speed camera that can slow down the image where you can see the bullets literally going through and piercing the bodies. So that mm -hmm. video then becomes another project. So though it's documentation, the way I edit it, you see it in reverse, you see it slowed down, you see it forward. So you're not just seeing the bullet go in and just exploding an object, you're seeing it come backwards and the bullet coming out and the body recomposing itself. So it's a continuum, it's not just death, it's life and death, life and death cycles. That's actually my favorite part of the videos, you know, like when you see the reversal of that, because it, you know, it gives me hope that maybe we can create that reversal for some of our future youth, you know, and, and everybody won't have to have, you know, that experience because it, it's just, it seems to me sometimes that it's just unending, you know, mm -hmm. every day we hear another name of a, of a black person who has been, you know, brutally brutalized, excuse me, by the police. And so I love that part of the video because it, it leaves, um, the taste of hope on the tip of my tongue. Right. Well, when you see the show at SCAD, there'll be an installation called Infinite Tabernacle. And once again, it's all in the name. It's a tabernacle. It's a shrine to some of these victims. And it's infinite because we know that this has been going on for 400 years and probably will not stop anytime soon. But 
like you're saying, I'm trying not to let it be just about the pessimism of that, that, those events, but also the potential to keep those names in our mind, to keep speaking those names. So those people in their memories and their sacrifice lives and informs our future. Does it does it have a way on you to to embark on these like really intense projects like that? Like as you sit, as you sit with the with the different sculptures and you're honoring these victims, you know, you're sitting with that. You know, you've been doing it for years. Right. And so yeah. how is it how does it affect you like on, on a mental, emotional level? You don't have to go to, you know, Dr. Phil on me. But, um, <laughs> you know, how does it how does it affect you to, to be in that mode for so long? Well, I had to stop. I had to stop making those because, you know, the unfortunate reality is I could spend the rest of my life making those pieces because every couple of days you hear of another person. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I had to literally pull back. You know, this is once a, you know, maybe a, a form of detachment is to pull myself back and say, you know what? I can't do any more of those. I think what I needed to say about that has been done. Um, so, you know, though I may go and do another one in the future, I'm not planning to in the immediate future mm-hmm. because it's just heavy. You know, it's, it's it a lot to uh process and we're all being inundated with that and we're all processing it so sometimes you have to try to take a break to find another approach or another strategy of coping oh for sure i, I think about that and um for some reason it popped into my mind i forget the artist the african artist she uses cow hides um but she she goes and she processes the hides the same way that her ancestors processed the hides um, mm-hmm. before she started working on them. And I think about that kind of labor and intensity that goes into it. Um, when you do that, do you are you in processing the materials without knowing the function that's coming? Or do you always have an idea, of, a goalpost that you're looking for? Sometimes it's doing that process that then takes you to the to the, to the goal or to the completion of the work. In fact, that's a really great question because the process itself sometimes delivers the piece. And it's, you know, a strategy that um, is well employed by artists is when you hit a wall, you don't necessarily know where their goalposts are. Yeah. Just get your hands dirtier, dirtier and dirtier. And through that process, something will start to the light bulb sort of uh, turn on and you'll know exactly where you need to go to complete the work. Her name was Nandifa Ntumbo. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I couldn't. <laughs> it's hard to remember all these names of all the art sure. you take in sometimes. But sure. yeah, yeah, I I completely understand that because um you know I um I do woodcuts like printmaking type process. So a lot of my mm-hmm. ideas are kind of funneled through um what's what's what you can get out of printmaking. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so so um but I appreciate how you can kind of transcend these kind of of material boundaries almost uh even mm-hmm. like um practice boundaries like it's not just painting it's not just sculptor it's not just video like it's a, it's a kind of a, an amalgam a mix of it like have mm-hmm. you always thought about your work as, as one big gumbo you know that, mm-hmm. like putting stuff together yeah well you know it's funny because when i was younger um i would have art uh mentors or professors who would say okay i see you doing this painting here but you're also doing that sculpture and i know you were writing music last night you can't do them all. You have to choose one. Mm. And I remember hearing that so many times and I just, it just didn't feel right. It didn't sit with me um, because I've always worked in all those forms all the time. So, you know, like I said, the only way I could really describe it is I'm trying to create a language and it's a complicated language. It's um, 
maybe a better metaphor is I'm trying to create a statement and that statement might need to use different languages. Some things are better expressed in French. Some things are better expressed in German, some better in English. I see the same with materials. I feel the exact same way. And, you know, my teachers hated it when I was in school and I, I went to school for photography. So 17 years ago, I was basically a chemistry major in the dark rooms and all of my <laughs> air quote bad prints, I would turn them into mixed media pieces and my teachers hated it. And I would do whole mixed media series. And one teacher really encouraged me who was Dawood Bey. He said, listen, don't worry mm. about that. You make art by doing. You stop thinking about what everybody else is saying about what you're doing and just do it. And that's how good art is made. That's the artist's job. That is exactly what we're supposed to do. We learn the fundamentals. Everyone learns the fundamentals. What can mm -hmm. you specifically and uniquely do with those fundamentals? And Daoud, um, you know, I've known Daoud for years and you know, he is a philosopher, um, creative genius. And advice like that was wise to accept because he, he knows what he's talking about <laughs> i never forget it and especially like being you know a black artist on top of you know mm. you know dealing with all of the aesthetics of what europeans say is the correct way to do things and you know i just i feel like your whole career really encourages artists like me who are unable to be put in a box and and the fact that you're celebrated for it is just, I mean, a round of applause for you. I'm really thrilled to be able to, to speak with you and have my career validated simply by you having your career in the, in the way that you work. Mm -hmm. Thank you all. You know, it, it's been a hard road, you know, approaching it that way. But I was very, uh, my mind was set on that from the beginning of, you know, anything that I did as an artist was that I wanted to find a way to communicate that was not limited to one specific genre um, because it wasn't about the genre. It was more about the message. When in your career do you feel like you started to be validated for that process? Um, you know, there's been <laughs> fits and starts. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, I had a, a piece of the Whitney Biennial in uh, 2002 and it was a video installation, a collaboration I did with a friend, uh, Jennifer Zakin. And, you know, I love that piece. It was a great video installation. I feel like we did what we were supposed to do. Um, and the fact that it was in the Whitney was a huge validation. But, of course, now everyone expects you to just do video works. So then I would have to sort of reinvent. I personally wasn't reinventing because I was already working that way. But every time I'm showing, I have people coming and saying, wait, I thought you just did video. or I thought you just did sculpture. Or, I thought you just did this. And because of that, it's taken so many years and the compilation of so many different works in different genres that people are now saying, oh, that's the consistency, is that the materials mm -hmm. are not the consistency. The message mm -hmm. is the consistency. But that's a big picture approach. And a lot of people don't have that kind of patience, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'd have that patience the second time around, but that's how it went down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a part of the process and we appreciate hearing it. And to all you artists listening, do you hear that? Patience is a part of the process and you're not stuck in any one box with any one media. OK, Sanford Bigger's career is a testimony of that. Yeah, yeah, that would be a piece of advice I'd give to people is definitely keep plugging through and also to. Um, yeah, to accept no limits and put no limits upon yourself. I think we'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about moon medicine. And so mm -hmm. when I saw this video of you and the group performing 
um, weird fishes. <laughs> like this mm-hmm. guy's having a lot of fun right now, uh, <laughs> making all this stuff. Like, tell us how that came about. Okay, well, um, yeah. So I was a musician before I was an artist. Um, when I was a kid, I took piano lessons and then quit because I hated playing classical. But I continued to play by ear and had a bunch of garage bands and so on. So there was always been a musical thing happening. Um, by the time I was around 13 or so, I started listening to jazz and I could no longer play what I was hearing. It was just too complicated for me. So I started painting. Um, I was doing graffiti and oil painting and all that. Um, and, you know, I started painting some of those figures and that's sort of how the, the visual arts thing started. But when I started showing a great deal, um, I started getting asked to do different types of projects in the in New York. And um, Rosalie Goldberg reached out to me. Um, she's the director of the Performance Art Biennial in New York City and uh, asked me to do a commission piece for that um, biennial. And I assembled this group of musicians. It was Jahi Sundance and Saul Williams and Martin Luther, Estero, Shea Fiol, Imani Uzuri. Um, and we did a piece called The Something Sweet. And it was a conceptual piece. It was at the box. The box just opened uh, on the Bowery in New York. And it was like an old vaudevillian burlesque looking club underground. You know, you had to know the knock to get in type of place. And <laughs> we did this piece that was based off of minstrel shows. But I revamped all the characters and there was no blackface in it or anything. But we used the tropes and the structure of a minstrel show to do this political piece that had singing and uh, music and so on. And I was playing keys. I was the music director and I assembled that whole squad. And once that project was done, you know, I already had the makings of the band and I was asked to do something at Art Basel in Miami. And I put a smaller version together called Moon Medicine. Uh, using a lot of those same performers. And we started taking that show on the road. So now we played like the studio, um, sorry, the Apollo, uh, Kennedy Center, Lincoln Center, uh, Art Basel, and a bunch of other venues. And each performance is different. It's very conceptual. We wear masks and costumes. We've got video. We involve the audience. So, yeah. How much of that is just you cutting loose and, and having a good time rocking with your friends? It's like 100% that, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's art, and that, that's another way for me. I mean, that's, that's when it's like a really free form of art, because now I know how to construct that in a way where it becomes something that's more than just a band on a stage playing songs, but an experience, a communal, uh, interdisciplinary experience that if, you know, you're in the audience and you hear an all-black group in these weird costumes playing Radiohead's Weird Fish, but we're doing a funky soul version of it. You know, there's a lot of conceptual stuff already happening right there. Yeah. Uh, our bass player is Andre Simone, who was Prince's original bass player for his first three albums. Wow. Not a slouch. And not a slouch at all. Not a slouch. And we're literally playing the song Controversy by Prince Uh-oh. that Andre helped to write. But <laughs> we're changing the lyrics out and we're singing Lift Every Voice and Sing instead of the words for controversy. So any music heads, any black history buffs already see the conceptual mashup that's happening with yeah. that. Yeah. So, you know, it's an extension of the art practice. It's just, once again, a different format. And That's heard, so epic. And I read somewhere that you have um, like components of it that are attached to video as you play. Like so different oh, yeah. notes will charge like different projections on the screen. Like is that well, tell me about yes. that. Yeah. So we'd like to include, you know, uh, I have a very non hierarchical approach to materials and technology. So, you know, we're playing analog instruments. You plug it into a speaker and you could play it. But we could also 
plug a computer into my keyboard. So if I hit, you know, a D sharp chord, you'll get a different video on the screen. So that the video that's playing is not just a pre-recorded thing, but it could actually be augmented and triggered by the musicians on stage real time. So I do that to sort of create a randomness, a detachment, like we discussed before, so that I'm not in control of everything, um, and a way to sort of spark different ideas from the band itself and different responses from the audience, because we never know exactly what's going to happen. I feel like that makes it a really cosmic experience. Like as I watch the videos and I'm watching the screen, I just feel like I'm taking a tour through the cosmos and just allowed to explore my own inner avant-garde thoughts. Totally. That's what it's about. You know, I don't even get too deep on the art speak when it comes to moon medicine. It's very much a visceral experiential thing. Um, But what you're saying right there is exactly what we want the audience to to be able to do for 45 minutes to an hour to just forget about everything that's outside, forget about their phones and go on a journey. Uh, a, a non-linear, um, sometimes non-sequitur, historical, cultural, funk journey. <laughs> the best kind. <laughs> Highly recommend it. Yes. Yeah, I like Highly. that. I like, oh, my dad would, would love that. Me and my, <laughs> I remember me and my dad sitting around listening to the rubber band uh, Boots is rubber band <laughs> yeah. together. So yeah, so you know that's that's All my day. vibe. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like that could be a bar for friendship. Like if you put on moon medicine and the person next to you is cringing or something, like we can't be friends. Like we we don't match. You know, you can't have this experience with me. Okay, that's fine. You're on a different level of friendship. You know. Well, I'll tell you, we had this show once. Uh, I won't say the city, but we, you know, it was a largely white audience, and we were like, <laughs> ah, too bad. We wish there was more of a mix here because. You need a mixed audience because some of the signifiers are talking to one group and then another to another group and another group. And it's the most fun when it's a mixed audience and you see different eruptions from different groups throughout the show. Um, But we had this one and, you know, we came out in our mask wearing trench coats with um, with uh, loudspeakers and horns and going through the audience, you know, sneaking up on people with these scary masks (laughs) and using the (laughs) megaphone behind them while they're like the DJs on the stage. It was freaking people out. And then we got into this whole thing where we interrupted like uh, the whole broadcast and the lights went down and you got a presidential alert <laughs> on the screen. And we started, you know, making some pointed remarks here and there without putting too many names in it. And, you know, I saw like a good seven or eight people get up in a huff and they walked out of it. <laughs> and, you know, bar was, yeah, well, I was like, oh, my God, people are leaving. And then I was like that's probably a good thing. You can't pay yes. for that type of theater because there's a whole bunch of other people who stayed who were happy to see them go. And that became exactly. part of the energy. You know? <laughs> it's a great bar setter. I promise you, if my friends cannot get down with Moon Medicine, then we're friends on a different level than I originally thought. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty awesome, man. So with you in your life, as we come kind of bring this thing to a close, like tell us what you're working on like right now. No spoilers, but you know, just give us an idea of the new newness that you got in the studio? Well, I've been working on uh, a new body of work. I call them chimera, you know, which are like shape-sifting creatures that can change and morph their shapes and their hybrids of various animals uh, and fantastical uh, creatures. Um, And there'll actually be a few of them in the SCAD show. And right now I'm fusing aspects of African sculpture, you know, figures and masks and so on, with Greco-Roman traditional uh, marble sculptures. 
So you might see like the body of Aphrodite with a Benin goddess head. And they're really beautiful objects to see. But of course, they talk about trade and cross-cultural currents and all this other stuff embedded, you know, um, sort of deeper uh, content. So I'm working on those. And um, I have a major project about to open at Rockefeller Plaza in New York City. In New York City. And you'll see a very large uh, monumental scale version of one of those chimeras. And I'm also taking over the entire plaza. So you'll see uh, vitrines with my artwork nice. and light boxes on the street and a virtual reality component and including some moon medicine in that, too. So it will be cross disciplinary for sure. Um, and, uh, of course, there's the SCAD show coming up and the code, uh, code switch show that's at the Bronx is going to Los Angeles. It should open there in the summer. And then a solo exhibition at the Massimo de Carlo Gallery in the fall in London. Nice. So now the chimeras are kind of like in themselves contradiction. So did that inform like why you entitled the SCAD exhibition contradiction? And what's with the slash in between? Like, tell me about this. Well, um, you know, in a lot of conversations I've been having with uh, writers and scholars, curators lately, we started to look at my work in a very syntactical way. So it's not just about objects, but about, as we've been talking about, a form of communication and setting up a certain type of language. Um, so that even as you look at the quilts, you can tell that somehow each quilt is almost like a roadmap for understanding other projects I've done. <clears throat> so contradiction is a way of sort of looking at it as a form of diction, but it's also not giving you one specific read. So it is contrarian. It contradicts itself. It's not a smooth narrative. Um, I don't see not life itself as a smooth narrative. So on some level, it just further complicates this idea of syntactical objects and installations. So I think that's why we went with the, the name, the title for that. Um, and it's also, you know, it's sort of like that moon medicine experience. It's not for the audience to leave with one specific point of view, but to leave with multiple points of view. For sure. And that's Contradiction. Uh, it runs February 23rd through August 15th at the SCAD Museum of Art in Savannah, Georgia. I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking to us, man. This has been a, really been a pleasure, man. Oh, thank you both. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you guys for listening and tuning in to another episode of Bio Talks, where we're talking all things Black art in America. Make sure you go over to BlackArtInAmerica.com. You can browse and shop the fine art from the growing network of artists, collectors, estates, galleries, specializing in works by black American artists. That's buyblackart.com. We'll see y'all later. Peace.